Hello and welcome to The Conversation Weekly. I am Dan Marino in San Francisco. And I am Nihal Al-Hadi in Toronto. Dan, do you read a lot? Yeah, I'd say so. I go through ups and downs with my reading consumption, though, currently in a bit of a down phase. Did you always read a lot? Yeah, I did. Uh, and like when I was growing up, I would I was really into like sci-fi and fantasy and would just get, you know, those six book series and be up way too late for a nine year old. My mom would have to like come down and steal my book from me because I'd be like under the covers in my room reading. See, I'm like you. I love reading. I will read almost anything I can get my hands on. But I'm also the mother of two school-aged children, and I would love for them to have the same kind of affinity for reading that I do, but they have to contend with so many distractions. Yeah, I got to imagine that's really hard for kids, right? Because like even me, as an adult who in theory grew up and has better self-control than a child, um, I get distracted by my phone at night all the time. I'll be lying in bed and want to read, and then I get a text from my friend, and then somebody sends me a funny video, and then all of a sudden it's like midnight, and I'm like, oh, crap, I need to go to bed. I imagine it's really hard for kids these days to like take the time and focus. I've been thinking about it a lot. And so this episode is about the exponential growth of digital media, devices, and screens, all the information that we have surrounding us constantly, all of these demands in our attention. What have they done to our ability to read and comprehend? What exactly happens in our brains when we engage with digital media? And how can we adapt to this changing environment of infoglut, where we're bombarded with information and distractions constantly? We'll start by specifically looking at our ability to read and how it's changed over time. I am Marianne Wolf. I'm the director of the Center for Dyslexia, Diverse Learners, and Social Justice within the School of Education and Information Studies at UCLA. I'm a cognitive neuroscientist and educator, and my mission is to empower literate beings around the world. Marianne first began thinking about the value of reading when she was volunteering in a program for teachers to help in underfunded schools in Hawaii. They sent us to rural Hawaii, where there were plantations that were basically indenturing families, especially from the Philippines, but from Vietnam. Throughout the 19th century, much of Hawaii's economy was controlled by powerful U.S.-based businesses and plantation owners who would bring in indentured laborers and their families, mainly from East and Southeast Asia. When the U.S. officially annexed Hawaii in 1898, the recruitment of foreign workers became illegal, but many of the workers who had come to the islands remained in exploitative labor contracts and poverty. I had almost 10 languages being spoken and about 22 kids in my classroom. And I had never been in a situation where the beauty of nature obfuscated the unbelievable poverty of people who had only tickets or coupons to buy groceries at a terrible store where I will never forget seeing worms come out of the lettuce. And the life of the children was simply a hope that they could learn enough not to repeat the indentured servitude of their family or the men 
who sat in rocking chairs at night alone in these Quonset huts because they had never earned enough money to bring their family, despite all the promises of the plantations. This was in Hawaii. And if it were true in Hawaii, I could only imagine how true it was in countries across the world. So Marianne decided that she was going to study the impact of literacy and reading on people's lives. And that's when I discovered neuroscience and linguistics. And from that point on, my goal was to understand how the reading brain ever comes to be and how we can translate that knowledge into teaching children who have struggles, children in poverty. And then I discovered dyslexia and the toll that takes at every level on children who are not able to read because of a neurobiological organization of their brain. What do we get from reading? What are its benefits for us? There are different possible responses. At a level that I began this direction in my life in, that answer was so that we could develop the full intellectual potential of that person so that they would be able, through school, through education, to get into a place where their particular potential could be achieved and they could contribute to society. So it enhances the ability of a person to learn and to think. But she says that her answer to what benefits reading can have has changed. I've become, in essence, obsessed with what I have labeled them, the deep reading processes that expand the reading brain of the child that I want to achieve their educational academic potential is the foundation. But that foundation expands over time with everything we read and learn so that we begin to be human beings who have the ability to take their background knowledge use it with analogical thinking to infer what is the truth or the lack of truth in what they are reading. So they are becoming much more discerning members of society, but also their lives are more enriched because of this kind of knowledge of what is truth, what is not. She says that there's another reason why reading is so important, especially in an era of information overload. When you think of an image of a wheel with multiple spokes, and these spokes are interactive, they're all feeding the middle of that wheel. And so background knowledge feeds, inference feeds background knowledge. That feeds critical analysis, which is so important for every individual in every society because it releases their ability to think ever more deeply. At the same time, another spoke is going on in which at its best, that reading brain is learning to leave the egocentrism of the self and encounter others. And I can't overestimate the importance of leaving one's own perspective 
and trying on how another person thinks another person feels. This enriches humanity, not just the individual. It enriches all of us because it allows us to have a form of empathy that is both cognitive. We learn how another person thinks, but we also learn how another person feels. This is not something that is a given in our world. And yet when we read, we pass over out of our perspective into another perspective, and then we think and we come back enriched and changed and sometimes transformed by the trying on of another perspective. This is an essential aspect of reading that I believe is a game changer for humanity. In Marianne's analogy, the various spokes of the wheel represent different aspects of reading, and they meet at the center. But what is the center? It's the place where we pull together our background knowledge, our inference, our deductions, our inductions, our empathy, and our critical analytic powers of discernment. Is this or is this not something that my mind accepts as true? When we pull all of that together in this central place, we have the opportunity to think our best thoughts, to have insights, to have epiphanies, whether it's in science, it could be the epiphany of a completely new way of thinking about something. If it's in literature, it can be the opening up of whole new thoughts about what that author meant. Proust said, at the heart of reading, we, the reader, leave the wisdom of the author behind to discover our own. That is the penultimate and ultimate benefit of reading that I believe enriches not just the individual, but the species itself. That's such a beautiful way of putting it, to discover our own wisdom. I really love that what it unpacks in terms of what it means for us to read. You talk about the difference between quick reading and slow reading. Can you define both of those? Human beings have a new norm for reading and it's called skimming. (laughs) What skimming does is it gives us a chance to handle the bombardment of information that we all have. And depending on our profession, We have just volumes of information, words. Sometimes people say we have as many as 50 to 100,000 words that we encounter a day. Well, we have research, not only from eye movement psychologists, but we have people who study literature and study how people read their assignments And what we find is it's not just the first page that they do this with, but in a given assignment, they read the first page a little tiny bit in between, and then they read the end. She says that while beneficial to our working environment, 
Skimming text is limiting our ability to process and comprehend text at a deeper level because we aren't dedicating enough time to be able to absorb the information contained in a text. And according to some researchers, this loss of comprehension is linked to the transition from print to digital text. There's research showing that when young adults, this is a study by Delgado and Sal Moran in, in Barcelona, they did this huge meta-analysis and they just studied how 171,000 young adults, how they comprehended when they read the same thing on print versus the screen. And what they found was there was far better comprehension of sequencing and that sort of set of processes when they did print. But the young adults said they actually perceived that they were doing better in screen because they could read faster. And they thought faster reading was associated with better reading. When we got these laptops and these wonderful digital devices where we could just take all our books on an iPad, we, I think, fell into a multi-sided trap. The one trap is to think that we are the same when we read a screen as we are when we read in print. That's one trap. Another trap is to think that if it's technology, it's better, it's more innovative. A third trap is that it's overloading our system. And therefore, we must feel that the only way we can do this is we just skim. We just become that peruser of information rather than that careful sifter of information and then the more deliberate processing of it. We are changing our comprehension at a certain level, that it is not as refined, it's not as nuanced, we miss details. But she says that we also miss the beauty of a literary text when we skim through it. Marilyn Robinson once said that the beauty within writing, the beauty that is an attempt by the author to achieve for the reader enhances and deepens the entire reading experience. Beauty goes missing when we are skipping and skimming and scrolling and word spotting. How can we have the full experience of what the author was trying to give? So skimming is both a necessity in a digital world when we're all bombarded, but it is a form of reading that has a great tax upon comprehension and, I would say, upon the perception of beauty. Nurhal, I find Marianne's point about skimming really sharp here because, of course, I skim so much. There's so much stuff to read and whether it's a news article and I need to get through it quickly or like even just like instruction manual for some new thing I got. I need to learn how it works. Skimming is really useful, but you absolutely miss the beauty of it. Not that there's a lot of beauty and how to set up your new TV stand, but point taken, right? 
Yeah, Marianne says this is how we're adapting to the vast amounts of information that we have to process just to get through our day. And so skimming is this adaptation or survival strategy. But the problem with it is that because we need to skim so constantly, we've become used to doing so. And we don't enter into these deeper engagements with content. And I definitely see this happening with like emails, right? Someone will send me an important email and I'll just skim it and miss that one thing because I wasn't actually paying attention. But I imagine the same applies to books too, right? Like you can't skim a book and get the meaning that really the author was intending. Bringing up email is actually a great example because we usually just skim through our email to try to figure out what the action items are. Mm. But when you're reading a book, that's not how you're supposed to engage with the content. You're not looking for things to do as a response. You're supposed to be immersed in it, appreciate the beauty of the language, get transported. And you can't do that when you're skimming. And these seem like fundamentally different ways of engaging with text, written text specifically. One is like you're stepping into, as you said, engaging with the text. And the other one, you're kind of this outside observer, like taking what you need from it. That's exactly it. It's are you consuming content or are you immersing yourself in the world of a book? So it's about how we decide how we're going to pay attention to the material that we're confronted with. We're talking about digital media and the way it's just an overflow of information. Does that affect our ability to engage with materials in a deep way? Think about all all the social media platforms, the apps and all of that that you use. Think of all the push notifications that come from them. They're designed to capture your attention. They're designed to attract you to them. And I wanted to understand more about that, so I reached out to someone who's been involved in the development of digital software and apps. I wanted to learn from him to what extent did the design of digital technologies have to do with the changing nature of our attention? There are a lot of sort of practices and tricks that are used in the tech industry to attract attention in ways that goes against users' best interests. I'm Kai Lukov. I'm an assistant professor at Santa Clara University in computer science and engineering. As part of his research, Kai has looked at how apps try to catch people's attention by using a technique referred to as foot in the door. It's basically that if you're a door-to-door salesperson, it's often good to make some kind of a little ask of someone. So you might, for instance, say, oh, can you tell me what time it is? Or something trivial that someone reasonable would usually agree to. And then once you've agreed to that ask in the first place, it changes the tenor or the nature of the relationship in a way where you're often open to larger asks. And so that is called the foot in the door phenomenon in psychology. And so there's many, many kinds of little tricks like this that are used to capture and exploit our attention in the digital world as well. And I realized after working in industry for a number of years, this was something I wanted to understand better. What happens behind the scenes that makes our attention so valuable? So attention online can be very valuable if it's targeted. That is to say, if we know that I, Kai, am searching for a very specific query, that attention can be quite monetizable, particularly if I'm, say, looking to purchase someone because you can put, you understand that I have a purchase intent and you can place specific ads related to that intent next to my search query for, say, running shoes. However, in many other cases, I may not have a specific intent. And then my 
attention is just flicking through Facebook, say. My attention is just general, and so the ads become just general. And that attention is not so valuable at the individual level, certainly valuable in the aggregate. That is to say, if I can show a general ad to millions of people, a handful of them will go to purchase the running shoes, even if that's not what they've been looking for at the moment. He says to capture users' attention, companies and app developers use a range of clever design choices and mechanisms. For every you, there are a thousand or more engineers, developers, designers on the other side of the screen who are purposefully or intentionally designing these services in order to capture your attention to get you to spend more time on the site, to get you to view more ads and to click on more ads. And it can be difficult to resist or even understand what's happening to you when you sort of feel tempted or lost in these services. But of course, that's not by accident. And so in my work, I investigate then what kinds of design features lead to these attention capture outcomes Attention capture dark patterns is a common term in use, although I prefer the term damaging patterns, and they include things such as infinite scroll, but also things like when you refresh that you get a casino grab bag of different and exciting new content, which is really exploiting the phenomenon of intermittent rewards to get people coming back and refreshing a particular page or site in the hope of getting that little juicy informational nugget that spurs us to continue. Essentially, digital technologies, including apps, often purposefully lure users into engaging with certain content, irrespective of the user's intention. To illustrate this, Kai gave me an example from when he was working to redesign a popular social media video platform. For example, when we studied YouTube and redesigned that site, we found that users came to YouTube often with two different types of intentions. One was to view a specific type of content or video, say, to learn how to fix a flat tire. And another was just to kick back and explore, that is, let the platform show me entertaining content so that I can relax and blow off some steam at the end of the day, say. And YouTube is exquisitely designed for the second use case, where you just lean back and the platform takes control and it shows you an endless stream of engaging recommendations tailored to your personal interests. However, if you come to YouTube with a specific intention or focus, then It's terribly distracting. It is not the right experience that the user wants to have. So the site is designed extremely well to do what it's supposed to do. It has its own specific purpose, which is to get you to watch video after video beyond what you had intended to watch. I want to talk a little bit about a paper that you co-authored. I don't even remember what I read, how design influences dissociation on social media. First of all, what is dissociation in this context? Yes. So this is work that was led by Amanda Bond at the University of Washington. And we looked at what can be called normative dissociation. So that experience of total absorption in a particular experience that's often accompanied by losing sense of the passage of time and stepping out of your own individual 
concerns at the moment so that you're just fully engaged with what it is that you're doing. Now, in a positive sense, this is sometimes described as what the psychologist Csikszentmihalyi called flow. That is, where you're completely absorbed and you're at peak performance and creativity. However, in the context of, say, online gambling, the scholar Natasha Dauschall also found that this same kind of absorption can be repurposed or redirected towards what she calls zone states or being in the zone of machine gambling, where people also similarly are totally absorbed. They lose track of time, but there's no creativity really happening. And it often is something that users later regret. So it doesn't align with their values or purpose when they snap out of that particular state of absorption. And this is what we found also happens sometimes on social media. So the ability to become fully absorbed in a task is a double-edged sword. On one hand, it can be a useful and positive experience when we want to achieve a goal, such as reading a book or learning about a specific topic or creating an artwork. This is what is referred to as flow. But when we're absorbed by an activity that doesn't fulfill our goals, it can be a negative experience. That's what Kai calls being in a zone. And software developers have figured out that they can exploit this capacity when designing apps and devices to make money out of it. So what impact do these design features have on the offline lives of users? I think one might say that individual cases like this of spending too much time on a site or service is something that we all experience and might even be trivial in a single case. However, in the aggregate, these can really add up to experiences that affect the way that we spend our time in our lives. So on the whole, then, they can have a dramatic impact on our ability to live our lives in line with our goals and values. In line with that, my work has focused on how these sites and services will often undermine our ability to deploy our attention in ways that we would endorse or in ways that support our higher values and goals, and how we might actually design these sites and services so that they do support those intentions that we have for use. But he says that it's hard navigating digital environments where sites are out there to capture one's time and attention. As in many other fields of behavior change, the reality is when the environment is stacked against you and our digital environments are certainly stacked against us in terms of the way that we spend our time and attention online, it becomes very difficult to deploy our attentional resources in ways that align with our goals. There are some tools and extensions that users can use to, say, block recommendations on YouTube, browser extensions, or mobile apps that help with this, such as the OneSick app that will slightly tilt the playing field more in the direction of what users might want for how they spend their time online. But ultimately, I think there needs to be more respect for the user's time and attention. Now, of course, that is difficult within the confines of the incentives that we've set up the internet within. I find it a little hard to imagine that app developers are going to choose to make us pay less attention for our own mental health when there's money on the line. And even like 
meditation apps and stuff, right? Those are still for profit companies. Yeah, it goes against what they want the apps to do, which is to get your attention, to get you to engage with them and to get you to use them, even if they are health and well-being apps or mindfulness apps, like you'd mentioned. Kai recognizes that. When I asked him about it, he acknowledged that this change wasn't going to come from developers and designers, but it needed to come from external pressure placed on them by regulators. I've actually always wondered if there was some way you could sort of train yourself to be resistant to the siren song of attention demanding apps and stuff like that. Why can't I resist a piece of cake or go make myself go on a run if I don't really want to? But man, like a new Reddit, right? My thumbs automatically go to type Reddit the moment I pull up my phone in the morning. You're a better human than I am, Dan, because if I was faced with the option of eating a piece of cake and avoiding a run... I don't know where I'm going to end up there. (laughs) You do raise a good point. And I, I was curious about that too. What do these design choices trigger in our brain? And what happens when we get distracted? The idea that we create our technologies and then our technologies create us. That principle, the Marshall McLuhan idea that it is the medium that is the message, I always found fascinating. I'm Dr. Daniel LaRue, and I work at Stellenbosch University in South Africa. I have a background in computer science, but my current interests are much more in the psychology of human-computer interaction, and that's what I spend most of my time on. Dan became interested in studying the effects of digital technologies because he began noticing that they were affecting his quality of life. How do you live a good and meaningful life in an environment that is characterized by such a diverse and rapidly changing technological environment? I think that's an interesting question. And I think it's a question that's not only important now. I think it was a question that was important in the Industrial Revolution of the 1800s. And it's a question that will become increasingly important as we move forward. In his research, Don focuses specifically on what he calls media multitasking. Media multitasking refers to the act of using multiple media platforms simultaneously, such as watching TV while browsing social media or texting on a phone while listening to music. But it can also mean switching between apps. The pattern of behavior that we refer to as media multitasking, which basically involves rapidly switching between different forms of media or between offline activities and media activities, has become the norm. It's everywhere. Everybody's doing it. And it's, I think, in a large way, it is a natural adaptation to the technological environment that has been created around us. Don and his team of researchers are particularly interested in the processes and mechanisms that happen in our brain when we engage in media multitasking, something he calls cognitive control. Cognitive control is essentially your ability to pay attention effectively based on the task at hand. So whatever it is that you're doing, some sort of control is going to be required to keep your attention sustained and focused on that task. Some tasks require very narrow focus, others not so much. He gave me an example to illustrate what he means exactly by cognitive control. On one hand, you have a student sitting in a lecture theater trying to make sense of whatever the lecturer is talking about. And the digital device lying on the desk or in their pocket or in their bag beeps, right? It's a message. It's a notification. What happens? Independent of whether that student picks up that phone 
or just thinks about the beep, there is an instance of distraction. So on a very basic level, cognitive control or attention is influenced by distractions that are created in our environment by digital devices. And by media multitasking, we shift attention from what we might term a focal task or a primary task, shift it away to a secondary task. And then once we completed that secondary task, we've now replied to the message, we've laughed at the meme we received or whatever the case may be, and we return our attention to the lecture material, we incur what we might call a switch cost. And that switch cost basically means that our performance in our focal task is going to suffer. Probably the most prominent example of how this plays out is smartphone use while driving. The reason we prohibit drivers from using their smartphones while they're driving is because it distracts them from the task of driving and there's potentially life-threatening costs at the end of that. So that's a real basic level of understanding. And most researchers in the domain will completely agree with the idea that digital distraction is one, very common, and two, problematic for performance in primary tasks. But there are other processes that happen in our brains when we engage with digital media. Once we start engaging online, let's use social media as an activity because a large portion of our engagement online these days involves some form of social media. That engagement leaves us with a degree of what we might call attentional residue. So what I'm basically saying is that if you go offline after the activity of using your phone, it is not like you completely forget or clear working memory of whatever it was that you were involved with online. There's always a degree of it that remains. So we use the term attentional residue to refer to this. And the idea is that over time, through frequent switching and frequent online interactions, a greater and greater proportion of our working memory from our, in our day-to-day activities are consumed by cognitively processing all these interactions and communications that we're involved with. That means essentially it consumes the cognitive resources we have available to work on things that we are busy with other than our online domains. And then And this is the one that a lot of people are really concerned about, is the idea that frequently switching and high levels of switching over a long period of time might have the potential to deteriorate our cognitive control ability. Okay, so in other words, what that means is it might be the case that through our behavior, we are harming the muscle that enables us to focus. There are three ways researchers like Don measure the impact of our engagement with digital media. First, using surveys in which participants are asked about their media multitasking behavior. Second, in a lab where researchers observe how participants use and interact with devices. And finally, by something called trace data, where participants are asked to install an app on their device which monitors their behavior. For a research project Don and a team of researchers conducted in 2020, the team used surveys to collect data from 1,445 students in South Africa, Botswana, and Namibia. One thing we've done, for example, is look at the relationship between media multitasking behavior and academic performance among university students. Academic performance is an interesting one because it says a lot about long-term cognitive controllability because learning in a university setting 
obviously requires effective cognitive control. You need to be able to concentrate on something, right? So we took students, high media multitaskers and low media multitaskers. High media multitaskers are those who see themselves frequently switching between apps and devices and are more easily distracted by their surroundings or notifications. Low media multitaskers are those who are generally able to resist distractions and the urge to multitask. We asked them to play a game, a computer game, this basic little two-dimensional game called Breakout, where you basically have this little paddle thing that you move around and there's a ball bouncing. I'm not sure whether you played it as a kid. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and you've got to see how long you can keep this ball in the air, right? You can't let the ball drop to the floor. So anyway, we wrote the real little basic version of this game and we made them play this game. But while the students are playing this game, on the side of the screen, right next to the game, we display a banner. Okay, Banner has nothing to do with the game. It's just displayed. Students were, weren't told that this banner is going to be there. They weren't told to look at the banner. It's nothing. So we just display it. So it's an irrelevant cue. And then we manipulated the game in such a way that there's two banners. One banner is basically just a bank's logo with some fine print about the bank and some policy information, real boring bank language. And then the other banner was a feed from a Facebook group that was really popular on campus at that time. This is something we thought a lot of students would be interested in seeing, so they'd have difficulty ignoring it while they're playing the game. And the idea is that basically your game performance is highly dependent on your ability to sustain your attention on the ball and the paddle, right? And then we, we made half of the high-media multitaskers play with the one banner, half with the other banner, and same with the low-media multitaskers. By having the participants play the game and have two types of banners pop up, Don and his team wanted to see if attention and distractibility depended on what kind of information was being displayed. And the finding we made was quite interesting. Let's start with the low-media multitaskers. The low-media multitaskers performed better in the game overall. So they generally were able to sustain their attention on the game better. So this is what we expected would happen. But what was interesting was that they performed much better when the bank banner was displayed than when the Facebook banner was displayed. So essentially, they saw it was a bank banner and some fine print, and they ignored it and focused on the game. But when it was the Facebook banner, they had a bit more difficulty doing that. They couldn't quite ignore it. It was just too interesting to go and read what's going on there. The high-media multitaskers showed no difference in performance on the basis of the banner displayed. Okay. Okay, so what does this tell us? This tells us that low-media multitaskers have the ability to distinguish between relevant and irrelevant cues in their environment. And based on the degree of relevance that they see, they will pay attention, but they will quickly decide whether something is important. And if it's not important, they will inhibit it. In other words, they will focus on the thing they're busy with. And it seems to us that high-media multitaskers have a lower ability to do that. So they can't inhibit irrelevant information. They have to pay attention to it. It's almost like they, they can't ignore it, if I can put it that That's so fascinating. And in hearing you talk about it, I wonder, how is attention related to impulse control? Yeah, so I always use the example of Tiger Woods, right? Tiger Woods is famous because of his ability to, when he's on the golf course, he really zones you know, in so It's perfect, remarkable. Remarkable. Even Tiger himself has said after a round of golf, like he hardly remembers anything, right? He's so, he was so focused on the task. And that is basically a great example of a really supreme ability to inhibit things that are irrelevant. I think individuals 
that tend to have a broader setting, that tend to allow more things from their environment to enter their cognitive processing, they're going to suffer more in a media-saturated environment because there's just so much more noise, right? It's really difficult for them to ignore things, whereas individuals that naturally have a narrower setting, a higher inhibition ability, I think their ability to cope with the media-saturated environments is going to help them to spend their attention more effectively. So when we started this episode, we wanted to find what the solution was or some kind of fix for the challenges that we were dealing with with our attention as we were responding to this constant and increasing flow of information. But our world is becoming more digital, not less. The researchers that I spoke to talked about how we responded to this changing environment, how we had these adaptations and kind of survival strategies. And what I realized after speaking to Marianne, Kai, and Don is that maybe adapting isn't about changing ourselves, but it is about being able to better respond to all of this information. So skimming is important because it helps us deal with all of this, but it's also important to be able to get into these zones of complete engagement too. And so I wanted to end with Marianne's advice on how to get us back to reading longer texts. We have all changed. We have become changed. And the amount of cognitive patience, we don't even realize it, but there's a patience that's needed inside ourselves to give attention to inference, empathy, critical analysis. It takes effort. It does. It's not just milliseconds. It takes effort to allocate attention there. And we're so accustomed to going so fast that the immersiveness that we were accustomed to is difficult. And when I had to figure out for myself, it's not for everybody, what would be the best way for me to recover, to restore? And I didn't know. I just handled it like an experiment. And I gave myself 20 minutes a day to discipline myself because I actually didn't think I could do more than 20 minutes of this kind of reading. And that was shocking in and of itself. But I did that for two weeks with a book that I had reread many times, knew it, and didn't have to worry about where the plot was going or any of that sort of thing, but just read it and try to go inside it again. And it took me two weeks of a disciplined approach to restoring that and then figuring out for myself, and this is not for everybody, I begin and end my day whenever possible with a book, an essay, spiritual reading, theological reading, a philosophical reading, something that requires me to stop, not look for sex, romance, mystery, nothing but thinking at a level that's outside myself and that can center my little tiny place in the universe. That's it for this episode. Thank you to the academics we featured this week, Marianne Wolf, Kai Lukoff, and Dan LaRue. 
You can find us on Twitter at TC underscore audio, Instagram at theconversation.com, or email us at podcast at theconversation.com. And if you like what we do, support the podcast and the conversation more broadly by going to donate.theconversation.com. This episode of The Conversation Weekly was produced and written by Men Marwani. Sound design was by Eloise Stevens, and our theme music is by Nita Sarl. Stephen Kahn is our global executive editor. Alice Mason runs our social media. Mend Marwani is also the show's executive producer, and I'm Nihal Al-Hadi. I am Dan Marino, and we'll see you next week. Thanks for listening.